Titus chapter 3 as we conclude this series of sermons. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were once, once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that as such that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn, also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And again, that's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your love for us and we know that the gift of your word is an evidence of your love. You didn't have to reveal your word to us this way. You didn't have to reveal yourself in a written way like this. But you have. And we're so thankful for it. Thankful for this uh, clear description of not just who you are, but how it is that you would have us as your people to live. And so I pray your blessing upon our time together in this part of your word. I thank you for the opportunity we've had as a congregation to work through these pastoral epistles. To, to study these letters that you wrote to these uh, ministers uh, who were dealing with particular issues in churches. And we pray that you would take what we've learned and use it in our own lives and our own church to make us what you would have us to be. And I pray for us as we deal with this particular text that you would uh, give us grace, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive uh, the wonder and the truth of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great uh, principles that we've seen from our study in the pastoral epistles is the connection between faith and life, uh, between what we believe and what we do, between our doctrine or our theology and our behavior. You know, a recurring theme throughout these three letters that Paul wrote uh, to Timothy and to Titus, a recurring theme has been the importance of of teaching sound biblical truth in the church. 
and protecting the church from what is false or what is untrue. That's one of the primary responsibilities God gives the church leaders. That is to make sure that the church is receiving sound biblical teaching and that the church is protected or guarded from what is false or what is full of error. However, sound doctrine and biblical teaching are not to be given or taught in a vacuum. Nor are they to be taught simply to gain knowledge. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. And if we're just in it for the knowledge, we're pursuing the wrong goal. Because in everything we do in our teaching and preaching in the church, it ought to have a a practical impact upon our lives. I said last week that doctrine is unto life. And what I mean by that is what what we study in the Bible ought to have, make some difference in who we are. It ought to change us. Our, our prayer is, as we study the Bible, that it would proceed through our, our, our minds and go to our hearts. That the truth of God's Word that we learn and study together would grip our hearts. That it would change our hearts. Because, again, it's Jesus who said that it's out of the heart they flow all the issues of life. And so the most important thing is what is the condition or the state of your heart? Because that is what determines the state of your life, the pattern of your life, the course of your life. And so as we study God's Word, we want it to grip and to change our hearts. We might be more like Jesus. And that's where this study of the pastoral epistles ends it ends with Paul describing how our faith should make a difference in the way that we think in the way that we speak in the way that we act how our understanding of who God is and what we believe about God should change the way we live and how our relationship with Jesus should redirect our lives from being conformed to this world being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, It appears to me as I looked and studied through this chapter 3 that Paul is dealing with two things. One is dealing with how your faith should make a difference in the way that you live your life in society in general. And also how your faith in Christ should make a difference in the way that you live your life in the church in particular. That's our two points for our message this morning. So our first focus this morning is on how you apply your faith to your life in society at large. To do that, you must remember your responsibility. You have a responsibility as a Christian to live like a Christian. You have a responsibility to live as your name identifies you. Because when you say, I am a Christian, or I'm a believer, or I trust in Jesus, that places a mark upon you. And you have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility to live like what you are. To live out your faith. What does it mean to live as a Christian 
in a lost world, what does being a Christian look like? Especially in a godless and unbelieving culture. For too long, believers have not taken that question seriously. Now maybe I should say for too long, professing believers or professing Christians have not taken that question seriously. Some years ago, there was a a lot of talk about what was called the moral majority. Remember that, moral majority? The idea was that the majority of people in our country hold to conservative, moral, even biblical values. Really? Really? If, If that's true, if that is really true, How has our nation gotten in the place it's in today? Or it may be that a majority of people professed to hold to conservative, moral, even biblical values. It may be that people professed to to believe, marked on a survey, that they were a Christian. Where's the impact of that? in our culture. Don't you understand that if a true majority of people in our country are God-fearing, truly God-fearing, Bible-believing, law-abiding, Christ-honoring people, that our culture will be much different than it is today. That was a problem in Paul's day too. You need to understand even in the early days of the church people need to be reminded to live out their faith and to apply their faith where they lived. That's what Paul is telling Titus in verse 1. He says remind them. Remind them. Now if he's going to remind them of something he had to tell them something he had already told them before. Now, to be honest with you, that's what a lot of biblical teaching and preaching is. It's reminding people of what they really already know, but have never really applied to their lives. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who repeated a sermon. And somebody challenged him on it and said, you preached that sermon before. He said, well, are you doing what I said in the sermon? And the person didn't respond and just let him preach what he wanted to preach. That's what a lot of biblical preaching is. It's reminding people of what they know. And that's what Paul is telling Titus to do here. Remind the people of particular things. And uh, Paul lists uh, some very practical things that uh, Titus was reminding them of in verses 1 and 2. Remind them, he says, to be subject to rulers... To authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. I'm not going to take the time to analyze each of those different traits of personal character that Paul mentions there. But what it boils down to is that as Christians, as God's people, we're to be good citizens. We're to do good things. We have a positive influence on the society in which we live. 
We're to obey the laws of God and of the society. And we're to make every effort, as best we can, get along with other people. You know, Jesus talked about believers being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, Paul doesn't use those phrases here, but that's exactly what he's talking about. Those of us who profess to be Christians should live like Christians. Those of us who say we believe the Bible is true should live by the Bible. Those of us who say we have the Holy Spirit in our lives should walk in the Spirit. And that doesn't mean just being in the Spirit when we're in worship on Sunday, but it means being led by the Spirit into a life of godliness and holiness every day of the week. You see, a Spirit-filled life A Christian life has very specific practical ramifications to it. It involves keeping the commandments. It involves not talking bad about other people. It involves trying to be at peace with all men. It involves being gentle in your dealings with other people. It involves concerning the needs of other people as more important than your own. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. You have to remember your responsibility to live as a Christian. But it's not just enough to remember your responsibility. You must also remember your salvation. Or that from which you have been saved. You need to understand that what you are today is to be seen in contrast to what you were before you came to faith and were born again. And to make that point, Paul talks about the wonder of grace and the wonder of salvation. And what we find in verses 3 through 7 of Titus chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful, accurate, wonderful statements of salvation that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Verse 3 shows a contrast between how we are to live now and how we lived before we came to faith in Jesus. He says in verse 3, For we once also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You see, back in verses 1 and 2, Paul described the life of a believer. Now in verse 3, he describes the life of an unbeliever. One list in verse 3 shows the presence of, or verses 1 and 2 shows the presence of the Spirit of God in someone's life. Verse 3 shows the absence of the presence of the Spirit of God in someone's life. One list describes someone who's being conformed to this world. The other shows someone who is being transformed into the image of Christ. Now verse 4 begins with, that uh, very profound theological word that I love so much, and that's the word but. You know, whenever you're reading the Bible and you come to the word therefore or the word but, you really ought to slow down and say, okay, why is that there? Because it is making a contrast. And this contrast is extremely significant. That one word but opens 
the door for Paul again to give us this wonderful description of salvation. Look at it again beginning with verse 4. And just listen or read along with me to this description of salvation. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, that statement is so clear. He really needs little explanation, does it? I just want to draw just a few truths from it and hold them out for you. And one is the emphasis we find here on the fact that salvation is a work of God. Look at the first part of verse 5 where Paul says, He saved us. Let that sink in for just a moment. If you are saved this morning, it's because God saved you. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because God made you one. We do not save ourselves because we cannot save ourselves. The Bible says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Before our conversion, the Bible says we had hearts that were cold and lifeless. We were blind and could not see. We were lost and could not find our way to God. We were indeed in a helpless and hopeless situation. And it's that understanding of the biblical description of the character of man that makes those three words so precious. He saved us. And if you look back in verse 4, you see he saved us for one reason and one reason only, and that was because of his kindness and because of his love. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Without the love and the kindness of God, none of us would be saved. We would still be in our sins, we would still be lost. But because of his love for us, and because of his kindness to us, he saved us. Salvation is all of God. The other thing I'd point out here is that our salvation is not based on anything we have done. How how can the Bible be more clear? It says in verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Salvation is based on God's grace, not on our works. Isn't that what Ephesians 2 tells us? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is all of God's doing not any of ours. It is based on His grace and not on our works. What does the great hymn, Rock of Ages, say? Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. 
All that I have to offer is falls far short. Could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. One other thing I'd point out just from this uh, wonderful text on salvation is the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. You know, we talk a lot about the work of God the Father, that He planned our salvation, that He sent uh, His Son to accomplish our salvation, that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world for salvation. We talk a lot about God the Son, don't we? His work in salvation, giving His life on the cross, dying for us to redeem us, pay the price for our salvation. But we don't talk so much about the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. But look at verse 5 again. He saved us, now toward the end, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Remember what uh, Jesus told Nicodemus when he came to him at night and began to ask him questions kind of indirectly about salvation? That's when Jesus said, you must be born again. Then he also said, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. My understanding of that is that you must be born physically, of course, but you also must be born spiritually. You must be born of the Holy Spirit to be a Christian. Regeneration, being born again, receiving a new heart is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul mentions each person of the the Trinity in this text. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The way we break it down in general is this. God the Father plans our salvation. God the Son accomplishes our salvation. And God the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. That's why we can sing that great hymn with such joy. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. So lovely the world that He gave us His Son. Hang on to what... The Bible says here, He saved us. And it's that understanding of salvation by grace that enables you to do what Paul told Titus to remind the people of there in Crete. It's because of God's grace in changing your heart and changing your life that you're able to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceful, gentle, showing consideration for all men. Because of God's grace, His transforming, redeeming grace, your life is to be different and to make an impact wherever He has you every day. And then, second, we see the importance of applying your faith, not just out there, wherever you live in the world, but in the church in particular. Now, verse 8 is one, another one of the trustworthy statements. We've seen a number of those in these pastoral epistles. And here he says that this statement he's given about salvation is one of those trustworthy statements. It's something you can believe It's something on which you can stake your life. It is something that is absolutely true and you can speak with complete confidence about it. But he says again that if you believe it, look at verse 8, if you believe it, and you can speak about it with confidence, it is so that those who have believed God 
will be careful what? To engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. What are these things, these good deeds in which we're to be careful to engage, especially in the church? It's interesting that when Paul begins to apply faith to life in the church, he does so in, the, in regard to relationships, how we deal with other people. For example, in verses 9 through 11, he talks about how we deal with difficult people. I would say that for most of us, the real struggle in applying faith to life is how we deal with difficult people. Some people are just hard to deal with, aren't they? You have someone in your life you just struggle to get along with? Seems like everything that you say or everything you do just kind of irritates them. That everything they say, everything they do just kind of irritates you. You got somebody in your life that like that? That's where faith applies to life, isn't it? And Paul's talking here about dealing with difficult people. In verse 9, it's how you apply your faith in dealing with an argumentative person. And Paul says we deal with that person by avoiding them. You know, Paul's been very clear more than once, several times in the pastoral epistles about how disruptive argumentative people are in the church. Now, as we've seen, that doesn't mean we can't disagree over things. We certainly can. As long as we disagree agreeably. It doesn't mean we can't talk about the things over which we disagree. We certainly can. But we're not to argue about it. We're not allowed to disrupt our relationships. We're not allowed to cause friction within the body. If you and I disagree over some theological point, to be honest, I can't argue you into believing what I believe or seeing things the way I see it. I can't argue into my position. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us into truth. And if you and I have a disagreement, what we ought to do instead of arguing about it is pray for each other. That God would show one of us what is true and what is right. See what Paul says in verse 9? Avoid, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verses 10 and 11 are about how we deal and apply our faith with a factious person. Verse 10, reject. It's interesting, the strong language here. Avoid a foolish person or a argumentative person. Verse 10, reject a factious person. Reject a factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is a perverted and is sinning being self-condemned. You know, throughout the pastoral epistles, there are two people who it's clearly particularly irritated Paul. One's a false teacher. The other was one who caused strife in the body of Christ. Interesting, that's where he ends, isn't it? 
You avoid, you avoid someone who's arguing about foolish things, controversial things, leading God's people astray. You avoid that person. And you reject someone who's factious. Who's trying to develop a little faction in the church, trying to divide and separate this group from that group. You reject that person. You warn him once. You warn him a second time. And if he doesn't repent, then you reject that person because he is perverted, he is sinning, and he is self-condemned. That's strong language, isn't it? But it shows Paul's love and concern for the church, that it be protected from error and protected from strife and division. And then the last few verses, beginning with verse 12, he talks about how to deal with special people. And folks, that's what we are. We're, we're special people. You may not be special to a whole lot of people out there, but you're real special. You're real special here within the confines of the church. Again, for Paul, ministry was all about relationships. And so he closes this letter as he closes so many of his letters. And that's saying special things about special people. What is the church? The church is people. We are the church. And the ministry of the church is to be all about people. And the more we grow as a body, the more we grow and mature in our faith, the more we enjoy being with each other, worshiping together, serving together, having fellowship together. That's, that's why you know, times like last Wednesday at the picnic are so special. That's why times before worship and after worship are so special. When Bill May and his daughter Mary Margaret were here a few weeks ago, I remember she sang for us. He stood around with me after the service for a while. And he was just watching you interact with each other. And after a few minutes he turned to me and said, he said, I like this. He said, this is a good sign of good things. God is doing in this church and I believe that's true it's a good sign and I personally enjoy watching you enjoy each other sometimes after worship somebody will say why don't you tell them to leave I'm not going to tell anybody to leave I'll stay here till 3 o'clock in the afternoon if people want to stay together enjoying each other and the fellowship God gives us in Christ with special people well so where does that leave us well it leaves us with a real desire to to apply our faith to our life to be what we are to be what God has called us to be to live out our testimony our witness so that we might truly be what God's called us to be and what he wants us to be. That your life individually, wherever God has you, every day of the week would be a, a light that shines in a dark world. A testimony to his redeeming grace in your life. The difference the gospel makes in you. And that we'd apply our faith right here. Right here in the church. 
that the gospel would be real, that our life here would be significant, that it would be more than just coming to church, but be coming to worship God with God's people, to have fellowship with the people of God and to serve him together. Because that really is what brings him the greatest honor and glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And again, we thank you for uh, the ability to study it together, but we pray it would not just end there, but you would take your word by the Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives, and change us, and make us different, so that we would, in all that we think, say, and do here, glorify and honor you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.